0: And I appreciate y'all being here tonight to sing along with us. So if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 tonight for a very special uh, Christmas edition of our Bible study called The Church. We, I was going to just do a Christmas message tonight, and then I started reading this text a couple weeks ago, and I thought, you know, I really think that this text has something to say to us um, in lieu of Christmas and in the spirit of Christmas so I thought, well, it'd be great to do kind of like your favorite uh, sitcom or favorite TV show that always has a Christmas edition, or used to, back in the day, that was always a thing. that would be a Christmas episode um, at least uh, every other year, maybe not every year. Um, my favorite, uh, some of my favorite shows uh, were always the Christmas specials. So this is your Christmas special of, the, uh, the, of everybody's favorite Bible study that we just started a few weeks ago. So it might not be your favorite yet, but maybe when it's all over with, it will be uh, but tonight we're going to be uh, looking at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 40 through 47, which is kind of a recap on what happens in chapter 2. And to save us the, uh, the recap that I usually give, um, y'all know what happens in Acts chapter 2. It's opening day of the church. Uh, Peter and the disciples are anointed with the Holy Spirit. They take to the streets of Jerusalem to the festival of Pentecost. They begin to preach the good news. People begin to listen. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, thousands of people uh, believe in Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, and accept him as their Savior. Many of the ones who consented to the death of Jesus uh, receive the life of Jesus Christ, which is just a miracle in and of itself. Uh, and Acts 2, 40 through 47 kind of gives us kind of a quick um, window or a, a short window into what the early day to the church was like. Um, between the big events. We know all about uh, what happened on Pentecost. We know all about what happens in chapter three with the lame man that's healed by the gate beautiful. We know about Peter and John in court. We know about um, some of the high watermark um, episodes in Acts, but they're, they're, every once in a while in Acts, there's these few verses that kind of just says, and this is what's going on um, every other day of the week uh, because we, we often read Acts and we think, well, man, every day it was just a big thing after big thing, and you know it was one miracle, another miracle, uh, but the majority of Acts is, uh, really takes place in these little interstitials, which, not to say that God wasn't doing great things, He was, uh, but it's we, we often have to reset our expectations as to what God determines is great and what God is doing, and we really find out what He is actually up to in these interstitials and really see what He can be up to in our own lives as well, which is really what we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, under this idea of life and wonderland, not a winter wonderland necessarily, but... Uh, life in the Spirit of God as a church member uh, in a world that may be fallen, but can be wonderful if we are following the Lord. So I hope this Christmas theme over this uh, text isn't, uh, isn't too bad, but we'll see how it goes, right? Let's go ahead and read Acts 2, verse 40 through 47. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, that's Peter, saying, "'Be saved from this perverse generation.'" Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, added to the church. And they continued steadfastly, or day by day, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So they had their doctrine, their teaching, they had their fellowship, which was their community. So we see that they had a certain set of beliefs, but they also uh, were, were, were in big family. They broke bread together and they prayed together. So they they spent time together and uh, getting to know each other, being uh, doing what families do. Verse forty three. Then fear came upon every soul, and this fear isn't this uh, idea of being afraid that things might go wrong or that bad things might happen. This is this reverential awe. This sort of, we'll talk in a little bit, this sort of, wow, God is moving and we want to be a part of it, and wow, we can't believe we are a part of it, which is really what I think the church is missing in today's age. We, we, we've lost the wonder that we ought to always have. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as, everyone, as anyone had a need. That's some good stuff. So to continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and uh, simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we see something very specific um, about what the church was like and why God responded by adding people to it. I know everybody's looking forward to this week. Uh, we all have a lot to look forward to with every Christmas. Even uh, as we get older, we we continue to make memories. Uh, you know, winter starts tomorrow, and we might actually uh, be looking at a, a winter wonderland if uh, the weather, if the forecast is uh, changing as it as it does. Maybe if it's accurate, but uh, that'd be that'd be wonderful. Um, and I promise I won't try to fit wonderful into or wonder into every sentence tonight. But. Have you ever wondered uh, why certain words often get associated with certain seasons or certain things? Are there, aren't there words that you only use pertaining to certain things, certain places, certain days, certain seasons that you really wouldn't use otherwise? And it's not that the words wouldn't be appropriate or wouldn't fit. It's just that you kind of just grow up in a culture that just assigns certain words to certain seasons and certain words to certain places or things and, and maybe certain people that you use certain words to describe. Uh, you know, we all know very clearly every Christmas we use the greeting Mary. We never use Mary any other time of the year. We don't say hey, you know, Merry Day to you unless we're living in England, not 200 years ago maybe. Um, but in our world today, we save this uh, greeting Mary for uh, just Christmas. And, and isn't that weird? Uh, again, 150 years, 200 years ago in England, this was a, a common thing to say to people. Uh, but the reason why, if you study some history uh, in, in the age, in the time of Charles Dickens, when a lot of our Christmas traditions uh, really got started, uh, Mary became the greeting attached to Christmas rather than happy, because Mary uh, spoke of, of, of making merryness or making um, or, you know, spending time together and, and actually doing things together, whereas happiness is more of a feeling that you have in your heart. Uh, the idea of making merry or being merry uh, was that you were having a good time and that you were spending time with each other, and that was the word that was most appropriate for this holiday that was about family and about getting together and about gathering and celebrating something that was bigger than just the individual. Merry um, was deemed more appropriate, and merry has been used ever since. Uh, while, of course, Christmas has an inner meaning uh, it really is a lively celebration amidst and amongst a family or community of people, and that's why we say Merry Christmas. Of course, another phrase that is more associated with Christmas than any other season is the word that we spoke of a minute ago. It's the word wonder. Wonder. And isn't it kind of weird? I mean, we kind of get married just because of Merry Christmas, but isn't it weird and isn't it kind of strange that we only really use this word wonder uh, around and, and associated with Christmas? Now, you might use it all the time, but we just see it a lot when when we talk about Christmas. Of course, there's a lot of songs where the word wonder is used in reference to Christmas. The most wonderful time of the year, Winter Wonderland, uh, the, the, the song that, that I'm, uh, we've sang before and it's really powerful, uh, More Than Wonderful, uh, maybe a lesser-known Christmas hymn, uh, I wonder as I wonder again we use this word wonder in a lot of our Christmas songs and a lot of our Christmas stories there's everybody's favorite movie it's a wonderful life why is it that this word wonder is used particularly with Christmas time. Now, the immediate reason that I think you probably would come up with if you thought about it for just a minute, maybe you've already thought about it, the immediate reason that I came up with as to why wonder was used uh, pertaining to Christmas more than any other word and really only used around Christmas uh, compared to other seasons is our verse from Isaiah chapter 9 where Isaiah the prophet tells us that uh, about Christmas, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. So we're given this, this phrase, this, the, the very first description of the Messiah, according to Isaiah 9-6, one of the earliest promises of the Messiah. And we have other things there, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and we've got more we can pull from in the Old Testament. But isn't it strange and isn't it really interesting that the first word used, the first description used for this coming Messiah is this word, wonderful. Now, there are other adjectives that we don't use. We don't talk about this being the most consolable time of the year wouldn't really make a good song, and people probably would look at you strange if you started saying that. We don't wish people a mighty Christmas. I don't know what that would even mean, but we don't do it. Uh, We don't, you know, wish people that they would have an everlasting, uh, you know, a mighty Christmas and an everlasting new year. We just don't say those things, right? They just sound silly, but wonderful just fits, doesn't it? Wonderful just sounds like Christmas. Now, the, uh, we don't do this often, but I think it's appropriate for this one. The Hebrew word behind wonderful here is a uh, word that is uh, in, the, in the Hebrew. It's palah, which means something extraordinary, seemingly difficult to impossible to actually take place, that evokes marvel and awe. So when we're describing, when Isaiah is describing the Messiah or how the Messiah will be, he's saying the Messiah will be, above everything else, Extraordinary. And he will accomplish something that would be impossible for a normal person to accomplish. And the response he's going to elicit from people is marvel and awe. Now, to describe something as wonderful, this reaction to something that is jaw-dropping, breathtaking, something that truly displays a special happening. Now, when we think about all that, uh, this word wonder seems very appropriate for Christmas, doesn't it? This word wonder is used all throughout the New Testament to describe the works that Jesus did. So we see it has a through line into the New Testament. We see um, in the New Testament that Jesus did things that were wonderful in the church in his power, did things that were wonderful. And we read phrases like this, and maybe you just never paid attention to this, but all throughout the Gospels, especially John's Gospel, and especially in Acts, including here in verse 43, all throughout the New Testament, we see that the church, because of Jesus and before them Jesus, was doing signs and wonders. I don't think that's a coincidence, do you? That Jesus was said to be, in Isaiah 9, 6, that he's going to be called wonderful. And we read over and over again in the Gospels in Acts that Jesus and his church did wonderful things and accomplished many wonders on earth. In these instances, wonder isn't an adjective, though. And this might be a little bit me being... uh, uh, a, a little English picky here, but I think it's important to notice that in, in, in the Gospels and in Acts, we don't see things being described as wonderful. We see things being called wonders. Wonder as in something that God has done. It's a new category. It's a new idea. It's not just something that would be described as, hey, that's great, but it's something that only God can do, and the New Testament calls them wonders. Of course, inspired, I think, by Isaiah. Fitting with Isaiah's prophecy, God took a rare description and made it a common occurrence. Now, do you see that? That something God said was going to be, the Messiah was going to be something, he came and invented a brand new word, a brand new category, a brand new idea. God worked wonders through Jesus Christ. Now, again, this might be a little bit too much attention to detail for your liking, but I think there's something here for us. This is so important as how you understand how God changed his approach. God's always been the same, but it's clear that his approach in the Old Testament and his approach in the New Testament were very different. You see, in the Old Testament, people saw wonderful things of God. They watched God do great things, but they couldn't get close. Remember, they had to stand behind a veil, but they couldn't go into the holy place. They had to get away from the mountain. They couldn't touch the mountain. They had to watch from afar when fire would fall, lest they fall over and die. They, had to see, they could see what God was doing. They observed what God was doing. They watched what God was doing, but they couldn't get too close. You see, in the Old Testament, people, observed, people watched and observed wonderful things that God did, but in the New Testament, it all changes. In the New Testament, people began to experience... Wonders from God and the wonders weren't at a distance. The wonders weren't all about oohing and aahing. The wonders were personal. The wonders were impactful to the heart of the individual as things went from being largely spectator and observation based to participatory and experiential. You could also say that God's approach became much more personal, which is obviously something we're all familiar with. There's no greater example that bridges the two gaps in Luke 2. In Luke 2, we find a very Old Testament scene. God has done something, and there are signs in the heavens suggesting that he has done this or that. A very designated, uh, designated by the sky being torn open, heaven meeting earth, the angels singing from on high. But there's a difference in Luke 2 that is very, very, very much in contrast to the Old Testament. Whereas it's not your typical stand back and watch and brush up against God. Luke 2 starts out that way, but then it ends in a very personal way. Y'all have read this story a thousand times, but but recall how it goes. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid, which is similar to what we read about Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, the temple experiences. It's very similar in line with that. Something big, something bright, something spectacular, people are watching, angels are singing. Then the angels said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And that's not normal. Because in the Old Testament, what God did was always for an an exclusive few people. It was always for a very small group of people. If it was just for Israel, it might even be just for a certain group of people in Israel. It was never all people. It was never always good news. It never brought great joy to all people. So we see something's different here. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So again, in the Old Testament, big things happen, spectacular things happen where the sky would open up and an angels would come or God would send someone and, and, and the appearances of God in the Old Testament are mighty, are, you know, he's like a mighty warrior. He's a bright, shining an example of what he is like in heaven. But in the New Testament, we get this very different side of things. We have a baby being born. You will find, this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So again, we get this right off the bat. The tone is so different. The approach is so different. It's so much more personal. Now this would be more than wonderful. There was a wonder from God in the midst of ordinary people because that night God became a man. Jesus was born From that point on, you don't see the flashy spectacle like seas parting, walls crumbling, or fire falling. But what takes place in the life of Jesus and in the church that comes after him is way, way different, but it's way, way better. Big things happen, but they're far more spiritual and they're far more personal. We have sins being washed away. We have spiritual barriers and hearts being erased. We have fire filling hearts and bringing people into fellowship with God. And again, while these may not seem to be as big of a deal as the Red Sea parting, or as Mount Sinai being lit on fire with the glory of God, or Mount Carmel being lit on fire with the glory of God, or the walls of Jericho falling, these things might not seem as big of a deal, but they're far much bigger to you and me because they're personal, aren't they? And they're not just something we can watch, they're something we can experience. You, you see, Jesus did more than just put on a wonderful show. He worked many wonders in the hearts of people just like us. All people means all people, and he proved it in his Gospels. Christmas is what signifies that God has took, taken a new approach. That God approached us up close and personal. And that's why Christmas can be called the most wonderful time of the year, because it's in this season That we're introduced to all the wonders that God can do in every one of our hearts. That includes yours. But the wonder isn't confined to Christmas. And here's where we're going with this the wonder isn't confined with Christmas or to Christmas, the wonder isn't exclusive to Christmas. Christmas was just the beginning of this new approach, this new avenue in which we could encounter and can encounter God. Christmas reminds us. That God has taken a skin-on, hands-on approach. Literally, skin-on approach, right? God has taken a new approach, skin-on and hands-on, with his world and with his people. This was not an easy path for God to take. He worked for thousands of years to prepare the stage, and even still, it would be very costly for him. It required that Jesus would suffer and die. And when we just think about that, it evokes that wonder, evokes that awe, that marvel that we were talking about. Jesus came as the only perfect and most precious of us all. But in his death, he became one condemned above all as the most sinful of all. Of course, he committed no sins, but on the cross, he became sin. All of our sin was put on him. We can't comprehend the humiliation, the cost this was to God in his glory because we've only known sin and shame. We've always been acquainted with letdown and failure. We can't comprehend what this was like for God to leave the glories of heaven and take on our skin and not only walk in our shoes, still perfect, of course, but then go to a cross and take our sin on and be humiliated and be killed. God, the Most High God, entered this world of sin, humbled in a manger, exalted on a cross. He came to take on the world's sin. He took our place in sin so that we could take on His grace. He did something wonderful for us so that He could work His wonders through us. Now, I hope you understand that. See, we stand back at the cross and we marvel at why God would do that for us, but that's not where Christianity ends. That's not all there is to Christianity, because He rose again, and Acts tells us that there's more to the story. His Spirit of God moved from the grave to your heart, and what He did that was wonderful for us is just the beginning of the wonders He wants to work through us. Because as we've learned in Acts, specifically Acts 1-1, Jesus began to do and continues to do great things through his church and through you and through me which is why we read we read sentences like 243 over and over again where signs and wonders were done through the lives of the apostles lives were changed hearts were changed all who believed experienced these wonderful things that God was doing you know when Christmas rolls around we sort of just feel more spiritual don't we Uh, we just have the things of God on our minds more. We listen to songs that talk about God. We read more Scripture um, than we do other times of the year. We talk about Jesus and his work more than we do any other time of the year, which should tell us something. The more we talk about it and listen to it and think about it, the better our lives are, obviously. Of course, I would say that. But beyond the music and the Scripture, Christmas should not just be a brief pause from normalcy. Christmas should be our normal the atmosphere, the anticipation, the adoration that we have in this time of year, it shouldn't be a Christmas exclusive, but it should be the Christian standard. And again, again, I know, you know, you're here on a Sunday night, we, we might already agree with all this, but we are also even guilty of siloing the wonders off in Christmas, aren't we? That it's almost like we've resigned to the fact that Christmas is going to feel different and that we feel more spiritual and we feel closer to God. We, the atmosphere, the anticipation, the adoration, it's different then. And we lose something when Christmas is over, but it doesn't have to be that way. And it shouldn't be that way. That the wonder that we have experienced in Christmas is not confined to Christmas. It should be our standard as Christians. So I've got to ask you a question. Might be, you might have a different response than... Uh, each other, and that's fine. And you might think this is a little bit personal to ask, but when's the last time you experienced something wonderful in your walk with God? Now, you can define wonderful however you want, but we've talked about what wonderful means and what the wonder of God is, that God is doing something in your life that's something that's spectacular, something that stop, makes you stop and think, wow, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. I can't believe I get to follow Jesus. I can't believe that God is in my life and he's changing my life. When's the last time You experience something wonderful in your walk with God. It could be a small, personal thing. It could be something major. It might be a breakthrough that he's worked in your life, something you've prayed about and you've looked for forever and ever, and it finally came because of your faithfulness and because, of obviously, of God's goodness. Maybe it was a bad habit that you quit because of the help of God. Maybe it's a good habit that you started because of the help of God, something you stopped, something you started for his glory. When's the last time you leaned into the wonder of being a Christian and allowed God's word and allowed God's plan to supersede and influence all that you are? When's the last time you opened your Bible and said, here I am, Lord, show me, speak to me, your servant is listening. And I'm not saying that you've got some great sin in your life that requires you doing this. I'm not saying that you're not more holy than anybody else. I'm not saying that you need to do this. I'm saying we all need to do this. So when's the last time you opened your Bible and you said, you know what, God, I don't really know if I really need to do this. I don't feel like I'm I'm not convicted. I don't feel guilty. But you know what? The preacher said something about it, so maybe I'll try it. When's the last time you opened your Bible and began to read and study for no other reason than you want to see what God has to say to you and what wonderful thing God wants to do in your life? When's the last time you cleared your calendar and said, Lord, what would you have me to do with your time? Not just on Sunday. When's the last time you looked at your schedule and said, you know what, God, I've got so many things that are above you on my priority list. I'm scraping them all away and I'm putting you first. So what do I need to do? When's the last time you opened your wallet and said, Lord, what would you have me to do with the top layer? Not the leftovers. When's the last time you woke up with the desire to serve God? When's the last time you went to bed with a heart to wake up closer to God? Again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I'm just asking you questions. When's the last time you sought after God's wonder-working power in your life? And maybe you've never even thought about it. Now you can. For so many of us, God is sectioned off to certain days and certain seasons. And again, not to be harsh, but he gets the crumbs and leftovers. And as a result, we miss the wonder and the power of his presence. After all, that is the true gift and present of Christmas, isn't it? The presence of God, the Holy Spirit. What's Acts all about? The Holy Spirit of God has come. But let me make this very clear. We talk about Emmanuel at Christmas because what does Christmas mean? It means that Jesus moved, on to, moved, moved into earth and Jesus came to earth to be with us, God with us. But Acts tells us that there's more to the story than just God with us. Acts tells us that the end game is God within us. People thought that God with us was the best it could get, but Pentecost proved there was still another level that God wanted to take things to with his people. Something else is proved. It showed that Christianity wasn't God's consolation plan. It was always his desired, intended plan. In Eden, even Adam and Eve only had God with us. But when Jesus came to earth and restored God's fellowship with man, Christianity in the church age brings us to a brand new level, to a new creation, to a new species of creatures where Christians cannot just have God with them, but God is within us. The new age, this new way of life would be truly a wonderland, the most wonderful life. We get a snapshot here in the early church on opening day and afterwards where we see the Christians relishing in this new lifestyle, leading other people to Jesus, enjoying life in and as a part of the church. There's no commandment that precedes verse 42 that says you need to continue in fellowship there's no commandment in acts 1 or acts 2 that says you better stay faithful to the fellowship of god's people you need to make sure you are studying and praying and breaking bread together there's no commandment where they say this is what we have to do we just assume that this is what they wanted to do it's very important they found a new joy, and it was exclusive to this new community. Lives were changed consistently and constantly. And as verse 43 tells us, wonder was not rare, but was common. Perhaps the greatest sign of how far we've drifted or that we've never experienced this true and better way is how we often look at verse 44 and 45 and we raise our eyebrows and say, you know what, I don't ha- like how that messes with my p- politics or economics, so I'm just going to skip over that. But we must reconcile our worldviews with these, this, this reality that these people were so committed to each other, they were willing to consolidate all of what they had for the sake of all of who they were in in the new community, the new identity as the church. Again, nobody commanded them to bring all their possessions together. No one commanded them to sell what they had and divide them as everyone had a need. They just did this, which is very important. It was because of this compulsion and compassion, commitment to community, the peace and love that God was working in them and through them. That's what made them do this radical thing. That we would say, I don't know if I can ever do that. I don't know if I want to do that. Maybe you don't want to, but they did. For a brief second during Christmas, we see the joy and wonder found in generosity and living with others first uh, mentality. But we change back to normal pretty quickly, don't we? Once Christmas is over. Notice verse 46 wants us to understand this was not just a first day or first week or first month energy and excitement. This was their lives day in and day out, day after day. They were a changed people. They were a new people. This was their new way of life. We see emphasis on gladness and generosity. They were happier people. They were merrier people, you could say. They were being married day after day. They knew Christianity was a lifestyle to live, not just a service to attend once a week. Now, I want to close with a short word on verse 47, which might be the most important of all this passage, which is why I saved it for last. Of course, it's last, so that's why we're here. Notice the unique sentence. They were giving glory to God, and they were having favor with all people. Maybe you've heard those, the, the, those words used together, or that sentence familiar to that uh, sentence familiar to that. They were giving glory to God. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Who were all the people? All of the people in the town, even the non-believers. They had favor, and they were showing favor. And, and, and the Greek here literally says they were wearing favor as if it was their clothes. They were wearing favor. It was as if everyone around them could see it and could feel it. Favor was resting on them and reflecting off of them. They were sharing the favor that God had given to them and the way they treated each other, the way they acted to each other. Now, if that is a familiar sentence, it's probably because you've read the Christmas story, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men or favor towards men or favor towards all people. Or literally the, 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 the phrase here could be reworded and favor was resting on the people. Now that the word, the, the, the highlighted part there is one Greek word. It's eudokia, which literally means God's approval of people. God's favor resting on people. So here we have something similar to verse 47. Angels rejoicing and favor resting on people in Luke and the church rejo- rejoicing and favor resting on them and being shared with other people through them. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence. And Luke wrote both of these books, so I don't think he wants it to be a coincidence. And it's in chapter two of both books, so I think that's even more of a reason to pay attention to it. Here's what I kind of observe from this. The gospel is always being moved from reconciled to unreconciled. Angels worshiping because they were the only ones that were reconciled to God at that point. Angels worshiping and proclaiming the gospel and more people hear and more people come to Jesus. And here in Acts, we see the Christians worshiping, sharing the very favor that they had come to enjoy as made apparent in the constant addition to the church. So I guess what I think we all need to come to terms with in closing is worship Is incomplete if the wonder of reconciliation isn't being worked through the worshiper's life, because there's an extension of praise and reconciliation as in the favor of God resting on the people, moving through the people. You see, worship is the natural response to God's favor, but the supernatural response is witnessing. Not by hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Will you listen to me? But There's something more importantly being done here. Because in Acts, the masses are feeling favor as it was shown to them by the church. Just as we feel God's favor, just as our souls feel their worth in Christmas, if we're rightly relating to the word, the world will feel the love and kindness that God has shared with us. Y'all know I love to bring Christmas hymns into the story. A line from O Holy Night that we don't talk about a lot Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is peace, love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Why do the oppression cease? Because we take responsibility for our brother and our sister. And as God has reconciled us to him, we see a need for reconciliation. And we see a world that needs the peace and the love that we have come to know. We don't know all the details of this earthly community, but we do know and we can glean that they were so focused on being at peace with each other and walking in love with each other because they wore their favor of God on their sleeves. So I think what this really tells us and something that we don't talk about enough at Christmas is that Christianity and really Christmas is all about reconciliation, Another another Christmas song that we love to sing has that line in it, God and sinner reconciled. If God and sinner can be reconciled, what about sinner and sinner? Maybe that's a question we don't want to consider. Why is it so difficult to share the favor that we've been given? Why is the church more known for its confrontational and standoffish posture towards the world than its peacemaking In reconciliation posture. Because Acts tells us the church was known as a people that were reconciling with each other, a people that were expressing and sharing favor that they had been given. I know our response is usually, well, the reason why I can't reconcile with that sinner is because they're still sinning. And that's good. As if we aren't sinning, of course. And maybe we're not sinning against them, but we are sinning against God again, of course. And yet, what is God's posture towards us? He's open to us. He loves us. And that's what it boils down to. We can't make people accept God's favor no more than God made us accept his favor. But how did God eventually get your attention? He kept shining his light and he kept loving you until you could not avoid it. So we must do the same with our world. And I know this is hard, but we must, we must refuse to take personally what God refuses to take personally. And we must commit to making reconciliation a priority. Perhaps the most wonderful thing of all the wonders God has wrought in the world through Christ is forgiveness. And the early church made a habit, a lifestyle of communicating, God has forgiven us, he can forgive you. Again, Peter just witnessed and shared the gospel and loved the very people that crucified Jesus. You know, bitterness and unforgiveness is a disease. The thing about these diseases is if we can hold one grudge, then that one grudge will eventually hold us, and suddenly it will come up with a hundred more grudges to hold. The more we hold on to unforgiveness toward one person, the more likely we are to hold on to it towards every person. Even people who haven't sinned against us personally or directly will find ourselves hating and grief, grieved by people that are just associated with things we don't like. Christmas reminds us that God has moved toward us, God has given favor to us. Before our debt was paid, Jesus moved in our direction, and we have received favor from God. We have been forgiven by God. So may the world feel the power of favor and forgiveness in our relationship with it. What wonders God could work in our lives if we made this a priority? If we walked in the presence that was first gifted to us through Christmas... You see, because of Christmas, we can wear favor from God. Because of Christmas, we should share this favor with all. That might be the most wonderful thing you can ever do. The greatest gift you can ever give. Before we think we aren't responsible to share it, may we remember the cost that Jesus, the the sacrifice Jesus made. It cost us nothing to receive it and cost us nothing to share it, but it cost him everything to give it. The glory that God can gain and the joy that we can feel is more than wonderful. It's priceless. May we marvel at the favor that God has shown us and may we experience the wonders that he can work in our hearts and may by our hands and through our lives he continue his wondrous work. Because of Christmas, we have his presence and in his presence we are forgiven and in his forgiveness we can show the world the greatest gift known to man. So as we unwrap the gift of Christmas this week, let's not forget to share it with our friends, with our loved ones, but more importantly, with our enemies. Because if God and sinner can be reconciled, sinner and sinner have no excuse. It is the most wonderful time of the year, but it will only be wonderful for somebody out there if they know what we know. And that is what it's like to be forgiven and favored by God. And don't you think God deserved to have as many people rejoicing and celebrating Jesus' birth as we can bring into the equation? I think so. So let's go out and worship and tell the whole world why he's worthy, why he's wonderful. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for this opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank you for reminding us that you are so wonderful. The gospel is so wonderful. God, it's easy to get caught up in our own little lives, and our own little world, and forget the wonder of it all. God, you have done so much for so many and all of us. And Lord, what is so marvelous about the early church is they made a priority to love and witness to those that were the most unlike and the most at odds in them. And while there were so many reasons why they should not have had favor towards other people, yet they did not let those reasons get in the way because you did not let any reason get in the way of you and us. Father, I pray you might would make us well aware of how good you have been to us, that we might would feel compelled and responsible to go and bring that message of reconciliation to somebody this week. that's what Christmas is all about. God, we love you. We're thankful for our inclusion in the story and through our lives, may you include even one more. We ask this in Jesus' name.